challenging content that confronts the status quo has the ability to change minds and create emotion and inspire, really drive action in ways that uh, purely educational content doesn't. And so I'm not saying that this is at all mandatory, but there are big rewards for those that do decide to challenge the current state and show us all a path and paint a picture for us for what the future may hold. That was Andy Crestadina from Orbit Media Studios in Chicago. Andy is a digital marketing guru and he chats to us all about the building blocks of thought leader marketing. We chat a lot about blogging and new trends and we touch on a little bit of SEO. Far-reaching conversation. He's a really smart guy. You really get into it. Let's go. Welcome to Reputation Revolution. This is the podcast where we help individuals like you to establish your voice in the marketplace, enhance the credibility of that voice, extend the reach of your story and your message, and finally, extract value from your efforts in building a meaningful personal brand that's both recognized and respected. Now, on with the show. My name is Trevor Young, and in a world where every second person and their dog calls themselves a digital marketing expert, today we have the real deal with us. His name is Andy Crestadino. He is the co-founder and chief marketing officer of Orbit Media Studios in Chicago. Uh, He's a popular speaker, blogger. He's a genuine influencer, um, having been mentioned in uh, such esteemed publications as Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine. And we're going to cover a lot of ground today because Andy joins a lot of dots uh, and he's across a lot of things, but we're going to be looking at putting up the building blocks of thought leader marketing, and that includes SEO and blogging and all sorts of things. So we're going to get into it now. Andy, welcome to the show. What were you doing 10 years ago? I'm sitting in this chair. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Unlike many people I know who've had very interesting career paths, uh, I quit the day job, started building websites and formed this little company in Uh, 20 years ago, 21 years ago, and I never pivoted. We do things differently. The world has changed. There are different uh, approaches. Uh, The channels have changed, uh, the way that content is promoted. But 10 years ago, I was publishing articles, recording some videos even then. And uh, the company here is is, uh, web design and development. It was 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and today we're still doing that all day, every day. (laughs) And just a few more moving parts to it as well. So if every digital year is a dog year, you've been in this job for about 140 plus years. (laughs) So, um, and and we have had a lot of change. So clearly you've evolved with it. Um, Just for um, viewers and listeners at home uh, or on on the treadmill somewhere in the world, there's just been this evolution of everything. And I I guess um, I've been following Andy for quite some time now. He puts out a blogging survey. Um, which is uh, a really strong uh, and robust and, and it's annual uh, look at um, state of blogging, I suppose, and, and how bloggers are blogging. So we'll dig into that as well. So if you're interested in uh, writing articles and setting up your own blog or making more with your blog, then uh, definitely you'll be interested in this. Let's start with you recently wrote an article about uh, the building blocks of thought leader marketing. Um, and now that's whether people can do it themselves or, or do it for um, a CEO of their business or whatever. But mm-hmm. how about you take us through the, the building blocks of what you see as, as, as that side of things and let's unpack pack a few of them. Well, it, the project began with my friend Michelle Lynn from Mantis Research and uh, Colette and Morgan from SurveyMonkey. 
And this is a conversation that comes up all the time. Uh, a lot of clients you meet or companies, they tell you that thought leadership is one of their goals. If you ask them to define it, you won't get very good answers usually, or people are all over the place. We want to be thought leaders. What does that really mean? You know, they want to be a little bit famous, mostly. You know, they want to create demand. They want a popular, you know, they want, you know, interaction on social media, traction. I'm not sure. So we asked, I think, 380 marketers what thought leadership marketing is, what it means, what kind of content, what kind of people. And it was very interesting. Uh, the current definitions, even like Wikipedia, not very comprehensive. But after we asked those questions and we got to what it, what uh, is at the heart of thought leadership, uh, a lot of it has to do with not just being helpful, but taking a stand. Uh, people who publish strong opinions, uh, people who potentially even embrace controversy, people who give you a feeling, not just information, but a feeling, like they're the inspiring, at a conference, they're the keynote, right? I'm a teacher. I'm not a thought leader. I'm just, I teach things. My content is all instructional and, and educational. But thought leaders are different because they will say what they believe, what they're for, what they're against. They'll plant a flag and draw a line in the sand. So, that, so I think we should start there as that being the difference between a normal content marketer and a thought leader. Yeah, I always like using the phrase put a flag in the ground because you need to stand for something and you know you can have a couple of flags but not too many. <laughs> but it's it's, yeah. a, it's a good it's a good kind of uh, a metaphor on that regard. So when people are a, approaching this and they say okay, well, you know, I'm I'm an entrepreneur, I run my own business or I'm a professional expert or a community leader and uh, I, I want to get out there and share and and I you know, I like doing it not just for being famous for sake but for, you know, growing your influence and creating more impact in the world, whatever that impact looks like. But where's the starting point? Because we know there's content and there's social and there's speaking and books and there's a range of things. Let's just probably let's assemble a few of the, uh, the jigsaw puzzle today. Well, it's the similar uh, approach to the content marketing mission statement, that little content strategy exercise where you decide you know, who your target audience is and what topics you'll be sharing with them. And then finally, why should they care? Why would they pay any attention? Why would they visit your site a second time? Or why would they tap or click on that thing? So the what's in it for me is explicit to that audience. So if you do that first uh, for, your, for a company's brand, uh, you end up with amazing calls to action for the website because you can repurpose the topics into a call to action to subscribe. I think on our site, it's something like, um, we are where digital marketers get practical advice about content strategy, analytics, and web design to get better results from your website. So that's the A, B, and C, the audience, the information, and the what's in it for me. This no different for a thought leader, no different for a personal brand. With whom are you relevant and why would they care? What topics do you want to be known for? So it sounds something like this, like I am the blank that comes to mind when people need blank. You know, so you are trying to grow a personal brand or trying to become relevant for a thing. It, it, you don't necessarily have to take a, take a stand or plant a flag or have strong opinion. There are amazing examples of strong personal brands, people who create tons of demand for their services and products, people who are very successful at promoting their ideas, who never actually um, go out on a limb and, and come out you know, for and against something. But I don't think that there are any thought leaders that aren't um, very clear about what their topics are and who their audience is. They, you know, you, you kind of have to know uh, for what you want to be relevant. 
And there's nothing wrong with aspiring to be a thought leader. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit iffy on people putting in their LinkedIn that I'm a, a thought leader and stuff, really. It's like, are you a leader just because you've got the CEO mantle doesn't necessarily make you a leader. But, you know, you can have a strong personal brand without being a thought leader. And sometimes that, the whole thought leadership thing hurts a bit more because if you're a professional expert and you build a brand and around expertise, um, you know, it might be really utility content and helping people unpack stuff. Um, and that's terrific. That's fantastic. But thought leader, you know, you're answering people's questions, aren't you? They're the things that I really need to know that. But a, a thought leader like a, uh, a Seth Godin or someone like that there, or a Mark Schaefer, you know, they're, they're slapping you in the face all the time. You thought about this, you know, Mark Schaefer and Content Shock and, you know, it makes up for uncomfortable reading. And, and I think that that's sort of the distinction that I make between the two. But as you say, you're still looking at your audience. Uh, are you going to provoke them or are you going to help them, I suppose? Trevor, I love that you said it that way. I agree completely. It's why I, I am not and will never be a thought leader. Those two examples you gave are legitimate thought leaders. They challenge you. You know, I have a YouTube channel that'll show you how to set up certain things in analytics and Google Tag Manager, and it gets great results. These are, you know, I frequently get the feedback that, you know, I've been following your content and it's been helpful to me. That is wonderful. That is my goal. I can be top of mind. I can make life better for other people. I can help people do a better job in their uh, whatever they're doing that day, all these digital marketing tactics, without ever um, challenging the thinking, without ever challenging status quo. On the other hand, there are big benefits to those that do decide to cross that line and go into the op-ed topics uh, to say that something is wrong, to take a stand, you know, to, to to point out that that this is that this should be better, to paint a picture of a future state where the world is a better place. You know, these are it's a categorically different thing. I love it. I respect it. One of the benefits, I think, is in sales because there are sales messages that need to overcome status quo because one of the options for your prospects is to just simply not hire you and do nothing. Uh, challenging content that, that confronts the status quo uh, has the ability to, to change minds and create emotion and, and inspire, really drive action in ways that uh, purely educational content doesn't. And so... Uh, I'm not saying that th that this is at all mandatory, but there are big rewards for those that do decide to uh, challenge these the, the current state and show us all a path and paint a picture for us for you know what what the future may hold. Uh, the general idea is to stop and say, you know, what do what questions are people in our industry afraid to answer? Very hard to do, right? What questions are people in our industry afraid to answer? It's like. Try to do that. It's hard. What do you believe will happen in the future that most people would disagree with? Very hard to do, right? These are challenging. So if either of those questions get you excited, do it. Write it down. Take a stand. Give it a shot. You have very little to lose. Or if you're part of a brand that's more conservative and in kind of a, you know, an old line industry where you don't need to do that, just keep being helpful. You can keep doing content marketing without, without any um, str you know, strong point of view. And I think you know you can't go wrong being useful and helpful. I mean, no, it serves sure. so many purposes, and um, you know, and and that's you become a go-to inf informational resource, and potentially a go-to. Uh, can you fix this for me? So, um, mm -hmm. I think that they, they, it's not either or necessarily, and it's it's something that you've got to you know want to do it um, one way or the other. You'll probably veer one way or the other, but they're, they're 
they're different, but <laughs> same, 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 but different. Um, in terms of, um, you know, getting the basics right, I'm a big believer in having a content hub and blogging and, and you know, you're an old school blogger from way back. When did you just first start blogging? Probably 20 years ago, wasn't it? Uh, no, 2007. That's, that's when I did. Um, at a time when it was very collegiate and everyone supported everyone and Twitter was a really lovely place and oh, utopia. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, and, and clearly it's, it's a much busier space now and um, the game has been upped and upped and upped a lot. Uh, and your, your content is, is just, I, I just love it because it's just so in-depth and you really take, you really unpack and dissect all very key things uh, around digital marketing and content. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, with the uh, blogging then, let's look at the blogging over, so over seven years you've been doing this blogging survey of, of hundreds of active bloggers around the world. Uh, a lot of them would be, you know, people not necessarily doing it for their, you know, they might be the business, the blog might be their business side of things as well, or it might be part of a bigger organisation. But what's the general, I don't want to say feedback, what's the general gist of what it was like, you know, five, six, seven years ago? Were there any, is there any been one massive change that, or one or two um, changes in the trend that you've seen? Well, Trevor, you just sort of summarised it as you described Twitter. Uh, it has become more competitive, uh, to compete, people are going deeper into topics. People are publishing uh, longer form content. People are spending more time on each piece of content. People are promoting in more channels. So it's a bit, little bit of an arms race that makes it. Uh, and this, and you mentioned briefly, content shock, which is Mark Schaefer's piece about. Um, in his view, many of us don't completely agree, but in his view, uh, the lack of the the fact that content marketing may be unsustainable on certain levels because. There's an infinite amount of potential content, but a finite amount of resources or of attention span. So the idea behind the blogger survey, strategically, the plan was to do something else that aligns with thought leadership um, generally, which is to publish original research. Research reports um, came back as one of the top for, top formats for thought leadership. So we wanted to produce an, a statistic that didn't exist before. We wanted to answer a question that had never been answered before. The first one and the main one at the beginning was, how long does it take to write a blog post? No one knew. Couldn't find it. So the only way to credibly report that is to ask tons of bloggers. So we set a threshold at 1,000. And through mostly manual outreach, just one-to-one, -one, finally got 1,000 people to respond over several months. And the average time in the beginning, this was 2014, it was like two and a half hours, not even. Fast forward seven years, the average blog post takes like four hours to create now. Wow, four hours. And, that, and yep. that's, as you say, because they're getting deeper and deeper. And, and like your content, it's, it's how many words on average do you do? It'd be a couple of thousand for a few, wouldn't it? Uh, I Just don't few. actually count words. Mm -hmm. uh, You've got is, a lot of graphics and stuff often as well. Yeah, uh, I would say that probably the average piece of content that I publish is maybe 1,500 to 2,500 words. Yep. I'm guessing I, I should go back and look. Uh, <laughs> How many images we include in a typical post is very high uh, mm -hmm. because there's lots of charts. It's sort of like, yeah. it's like technical writing. It's like how to do this thing, like where to click. Um, and so there's like 15 plus images per, per article. Blogging has gotten much more visual in the last seven years. Uh, so yeah, it's a way to, I mean, if you wanted to uh, differentiate, there's two ways to differentiate. Um, if everyone's a fish, you need to be, you need to to be the biggest fish and <laughs> go deeper or be a crab or another animal, not a fish, you know, which is what, what the op-ed content comes at people from a different direction. 
opinion, con uh, I mean, strong opinion is automatically differentiated because it's specific to you. <laughs> uh, so it's either do 10x or do, if everyone's doing x, you need to do 10x or you need to do y, something like this. Obviously, we're probably blogging less. I mean, earlier days, um, people were blogging, some people were blogging daily and I don't see that very often now unless it's a machine um, behind it, um, something like the Content Marketing Institute or JBears Convince and Convert. They have a team of people, of writers and contributors. Um, but you take that out of the out of the equation and people who are doing kind of their solo gig or that side of things, uh, just the blogger, what what are you seeing in there? Has it gone down? The, I take it quality's gone up. Uh, certainly word count's gone up. Um, I'll leave the quality question. That's probably a bit more objective. Uh, <laughs> it is. But, but yeah. the quantity, the quantity um, of how many posts are, um, are published per week. Yeah, uh, Trevor, again, you sort of have your finger on the pulse. It, uh, frequency has gone down on average. There used to be far more people who were publishing multiple times a week. Now there's actually more people who are publishing just multiple times per month. So it is not sustainable to publish a you know, 2,000 plus word article every, you know, with 12 images and a video every day. I mean, who could do that? So we do ask the question, like, do you get strong results from digital marketing? And that's very subjective. We ask people to self-report on results. But the, uh, the correlation between people who say, yes, I get strong results, and, the, and people who write long, there's a strong correlation. Uh, people who use multiple images, there's a strong correlation. And frequency. Bloggers who publish more often tend to report that they're getting better results. That doesn't mean that you must do all the things that the, the you know, self-reported strong results bloggers do. But it is true that uh, people who increase frequency do tend to see better results um, Maybe not surprising. Trevor, what do you, how do you take that? Length is an interesting one because if we go back to Seth Godin, he, he blogs every day and he's, he's probably 400 to 400 words, 300 to 600 words. Like they're short, sharp um, jabs. Um, and, and that's his, his thing. Whereas, you know, um, others, you know, a little less, and, but, but much deeper. Um, and, and I guess the other point is that it's... Um, I think if you're doing really good quality stuff and there is like once a month, you're going to lose momentum. Once a week, you'll get momentum. If you do it twice a week, you might get a little bit more momentum. I mean, if we take it over to the podcasting side of things um, and uh, John Lee Dumas uh, sort of was famous for um, saying, well, most virtually every major uh, podcaster was doing it once a week. I'll do it every day because I listen to it in the car every day. And that that changed the ball game. Um, and then, of course, a lot of people uh, followed suit. But, uh, um, you know, that's a hard, hard road uh, to follow. But I think there is something around quantity. I remember when um, Michael Hyatt, who's another big blogger in the US uh, around leadership uh, topics and building your platform, very worthwhile um, checking out. But he, he used to blog, I don't want to say every day, but maybe it was four times a week, but it was certainly maybe four to five times a week he was blogging. And then he surveyed, um, coming back down to surveys, he surveyed his his uh, big uh, readership and they sort of landed him on, maybe you don't need that many, maybe three times a week. And, and I might have to be one or two out of the figures, but he was surprised that less was more for them, but he still did say three times a week. So I think you've got to find that halfway measure. You've got to keep momentum. Because if you go down to sort of 
I don't know, once I, I've gone through it myself, you, you drop it to once a fortnight and it's easy to do once every week. Um, the ones that are consistent and showing up again and again and again and again, it's the same with podcasting, isn't it? That's how you build. So I think quality trumps quantity every time. There is something to be said about quantity, but it's not going crazy necessarily just for the heck of it. Yeah, I think a lot of the ultra-high-frequency platforms like HubSpot, also Content Marketing Institute, uh, ran experiments where they pulled back from those super-high frequencies and found that results didn't really change. Uh, on the other hand, people who think that they can publish once a month, or I have a friend who says once a quarter is all she wants to do. Uh, I don't know how you stay top of mind. I don't know how you uh, get much feedback from your audience. You know, I don't know how you, how you check to see you know, if this is an engaged subscriber or not. My frequency has been for the last uh, uh, 10 years, at least, uh, has, been has been every other week, which if I ask, stop and ask myself, how long is the typical sales cycle for us? Two months. How long is the buying interval for us in web design? Four years. Well, I don't need to have a daily blog. If you consider this, the length of the buying interval and the length of the sales cycle, can I stay top of mind with a high-quality article sent to the, you know, the only email we send, one email every two weeks? Yeah, it works for us. But there's many other things that we're doing in there. We published a body of work already that allows us to f take old things and keep them in social rotation. We published enough things that have gotten you know, good or bad results so we know that we can go update older articles. We're getting better traction from search by republishing older articles without changing the URL. So even though our frequency isn't high, the tactics we're using are still leveraging that kind of flywheel of that past body of work. Uh, and it's, it's enough. It meets our goals. Yeah, it's an interesting point. That's so fortnightly for you, but they are very deep um, deep posts and, and there's a lot in it. So again, quality over, over mass quantity and that keeps your level of um, obviously the quality up. Um, let's um, shift gears into SEO um, because I was originally going to talk to you about SEO for personal branding. Uh, what's your take on SEO at the moment? Um, I have a number of different opinions on it, but it's, you know, there's um, from, coming from a PR background, SEO for me is you know, from that side of things is more reputate. What are your reputational flags in the ground? What do you, topics do you want to be known for that if, you know, journalists and influencers are looking that you might pop up on that side of things versus, um, you know, I, I need to be found because I've got a shop front in, you know, in Carolina or wherever. So what's your take on sort of um, SEO for, um, for personal branding and, and for people who are trying to build that reputation? Well, in my experience, people do not Google themselves very often. I mean, if this would be a that'd be a fun survey. When's the last time you Googled yourself? Yesterday, last week, last month, last year? I think that a, there's a, it's actually pretty rare for people to go search for themselves. Uh, when in fact, it's very likely that other people will search for you. If you put in anyone, I mean, you could put your own name or the name of an executive at your company into a keyword research tool, and it will show you search volume as if there's people who search for these people. I mean, people get searched for every day. People are searching for team members, anyone in customer service, in sales, in marketing. It's very likely that you know as soon as you leave a voicemail for someone, they're going to go search for you. They get an email from you, they're going to search for you. That said, it's like anything else, you need to manage your, your reputation. You need to manage your personal brand. And when you go search for yourself, if you find that the, the number one ranked page for you and everything else on page one in Google are social media networks, or old mentions of like some high school sports 
accomplishment or something irrelevant, then first of all, I would recommend working harder on the bio on your own website. Google you know, is trying to find the best page on the internet for any topic. In this case, you are the topic. And if, you're, if the bio on your site maybe it isn't even a URL, this is common, you know, you, you, you click on it and it's like a pop-up window, it's like a light box or it expands to show the little bio. In other words, there is no URL. You need to have a URL. That's what SEO is about. It's about making, you know, a URL that's arguably one of the best pages on the internet for that topic. So there needs to be a page and that page should be detailed. Go, go into all of the interests, background, publications, education, volunteering, certifications. So that ideally uh, should rank number one for your name or number one for your name plus city or name plus company. If, if you have a common name, you're not alone. <laughs> uh, Someone who searches for you will just go search for, they'll see that you're not in the search results and they'll find their search by adding a word, usually a city or a company. So your business, your, your company's website's bio page for you should rank number one, probably LinkedIn number two. LinkedIn might get the click because it's a familiar platform. Polish, please, polish your LinkedIn profile to perfection. Make it sparkle. The headshot, the title, the, the, the headline, the description, the education, or the, uh, the professional experience descriptions, the top three endorse, uh, endorsable skills, three or five good recommendations, like just work on it for 10 minutes a day for the next couple of weeks. It will make a permanent difference in the perception of your personal brand. You'll never backslide. It'll be better forever for everything, right? <laughs> this, so is, this is really important. So you're saying with, with the, uh, the recommendations, for example, sometimes you get a stack of recommendations on really weird stuff. Do you knock those back? I've heard that, that that's a, a point rather than being known for everything. You just sort of um, tighten it up until the th- you know, for the topics that you want to be known for. Yeah, well, recommendations are those little letters that people write. Do you mean in the endorsements? Oh, sorry, the endorsements, yeah. yeah. endorsements, yep. Yeah, it breaks my heart to see someone that I have huge respect for. I look at them on LinkedIn, and like Microsoft Office is one of those top three. Why? Why? So if you come back to that question of like, we we said it a minute ago, you know, I am the X who comes top of mind when people think of why, like you're creating that mission statement, that personal branding statement. Those should be your top three skills. They are a thousand percent more visible than anything else because the, the person can see them without clicking to expand and they should make sense. It should be, it should flow. They should re- tie back to your job title or they should align with where you, you're trying to drive your career. It's social proof. It's third party endorsements. It, it checks all the boxes. It's absolutely yeah. critical. And LinkedIn does come up very, very high in, um, in certainly in search engine. And if you're going to do um, Google yourself. Make sure you do it in um, incognito, so you get to see what other people see, not what uh, mm-hmm. what you see. <laughs> Without incognito, is not what everyone else sees. And the other thing is Twitter. Twitter now comes well; it has for a while. I think it disappeared for a little while, and it's back again. Uh, but Twitter, your tweets come up really high um, that I've noticed with people. So I always think Twitter's the uh, the influence channel. And if your goal is to grow your influence, then Twitter's the place to be, no matter whether you like it or not. It's <laughs> it still has a fair degree of power if used strategically. So getting um, so having your social media, getting your bio page on on. On your blog as well, or, or just on your company page, um, that side of things, because some people might not be in control of their company page. What do you think about having a, rather than a full-blown, I mean, I'm a great believer in having your own personal website, 
with your name, if you can get your name in the URL, there's just so many more. Uh, what do they call it? The, the the end bit, at the, the right bit at the end. The, um, the, the the extension, the dot something. Yeah, dot something. The, uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. many different. Uh, TLD top level top domain one. or the TLD extension or something they call it. TLD. I've got in my mind. I'm thinking, what does that mean? Um, I know it's I, a word. I, yeah. I got the other day Trevor World, so I can put. Oh, cool! Good for you. <laughs> um, I was lucky on that one, but I've missed out a couple that I wanted to get. But they're, they're out there, and if you've got a reasonably unusual name, you might um, score something. But that's, mm-hmm. that's that's not my main one because that's not great for website. That's great for uh, putting in a bio on Instagram sure. or, or, or Twitter. But if you have your name clearly in the URL, that does come up well. But the other thing is, what about? Those sort of one-page type ones, there's card, C-A-R-R-D.co, there's about.me, there's there's a few of those different ones now where they're, they're I'd call them micro-personal branding sites, really. You get a photo and a little bit of a blurb, and they're kind of like a, just a postcard on the web. Do you think that there's any value in those? There could be, because if that ranks for your name above other things, it may have the benefit of pushing down other things. Like, I get this question sometimes, it's like, uh, Andy, I'm a doctor and I have, I, I have a drunk driving arrest on my record. And if you search for my name, you see it, you know, or some hor- some ugly divorce. Like, like if you want to push negative things off of the first page of Google search results, when someone searches for your name, then part of your goal is to just get anything else that you can to rank above that thing. This could be just claiming, even if you're not active on, uh, other social media networks, Claim your profile on social media networks. Claim your profile on YouTube. Claim your profile on Vimeo. Claim your profile on Pinterest, because uh, social networks tend to rank quite high for people's for proper nouns and personal names. Uh, the about.me pages or those uh, may have that other benefit. I think it depends on how common your name is or uh, if you've built other links to that page. If you want something to outrank that negative press piece, build links to it. Link to it from other things. And what the about.me page would do, or whichever one of those. Um, they're like little personal bookmark kind of pages. That'll give you an opportunity to link to your other social profiles, maybe helping them rank. So I would do that anyway. And then just honestly, just write articles for other people. The byline, write articles for websites where you get an author page, um, publish an ebook on Amazon, giving you an author page. You can sign up for an Amazon Author Central page. So you're trying to create lots of other profiles on lots of platforms, including like those that you mentioned, to try to push down irrelevant things or old things or negative things strategic omnipresence i call that being um being seen everywhere but uh um in a, in a strategic way it's a good point i mean the amazon one yeah it's it's something most people probably don't think about clearly you've got to have a book on it but it might be a, a smaller book that's given away for free which is fine um but i think the writing for other people which again comes back into more the pr remit and the earned media whether it, it doesn't have to be for a um a and you should be doing this anyway whether you're trying to push things down as as a rule and 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 from seo that if if you're part of a you know you're writing for a well-known blog um you're speaking in an event i've found speaking speaking things pop up quite often because they're at a conference or something like that that they hang around for a while so, so speaking writing for a um you know an online publication or a blog um, they're very, or being interviewed on a podcast, they're, uh, they're powerful um, uh, links to be generating. I'm not here to be telling you SEO because you are a master at it and I'm clearly not. But No, it's important. I mean, it, the idea is to uh, be active. You're going to be promoted in those channels. 
You're going to be, you know, in those people's social streams when that piece of content comes out. Uh, and the other benefit of all those things is that it, you're creating more URLs and pages on the internet that have your name in them. So if someone, even if they don't scan down or scroll, if someone goes to search for Trevor Young and it says there's 200,000 <laughs> pages relevant for Trevor, you just know that he's legitimate. That's also a type of social proof. It's basically like Google becomes for you a third-party endorsement. You sparkle from a distance. The people who um, you're just, you won't know why necessarily, but you're going to go to a meeting where people are really leaning in to hear exactly what you're recommending. Why? Because you were just active. Yeah. You were just present. You were, you were on those, those stages three years ago and on that podcast last year. And it, it does matter. Credibility and a bit of gravitas doesn't, uh, doesn't hurt. In terms of blogging, then, you know, so you're, the, you're putting out a blog once a week, say, or once a fortnight, you're spending time on it, it's quality. Um, if it might be more of a, a sort of a poke in the eye, um, provocative piece, um, or whether it's, it's more the utility content side of things. Uh, in terms of the, uh, again, I might, I might mention Mark Shaver here because I think he said it, uh, that SEO is a race to the bottom. Um, what do you, and I know that you do SEO and there's different you know, views on it. Uh, he's probably looking at it straight from a marketing perspective, but if we look at it from a reputational point of view, how important is it for the articles, um, do you th think? Is it something that people should be bothered with or just spend a little bit of time on it or go nuts on it? This touches on something that people miss, which should be explained more often, and I'm going to try to explain in the fewest words. There are three types of intent when, it, when you or anyone searches for something. They are go, know, and do. The go phrases are navigational phrases. You search for Trevor, Trevor Young because you're trying to find the person, or you search for Chicago Cubs because you're a baseball fan. You want to find that, that you know the company's website or something, basically. They're just trying to get to the website. They would have typed the, the address had they known it. That's 10% of all searches. Mostly SEO is not, not about that, even though we just discussed reputation management and personal SEO. The no key phrases are information intent queries for which the visitor really has no need for a service per se. They're trying to find an answer. They want to learn how to do something. They want to know how to use, you know, Google Tag Manager to set up event tracking and analytics so they can see blah, blah, blah. Like I'm just giving an example. 80% of all searches are information intent, these no type phrases. And people want to know information and so they search for that. That's one of the main uses of Google, and if you look at your browsing history, you'll find you did a million of these searches, you know, recently. But the third, and that's that's blog content. So don't, so yes, publish, help, be useful, teach, but don't expect those visitors to convert into leads. They do so only at very low rates. The third type of key phrase is the do key phrase, the phrase for which there's commercial intent, the money phrase. Information intent queries are question marks. Commercial intent queries are like dollar signs. These are like Chicago web design or social media management tool or reputation management service. Those are phrases that would only search if they needed help and wanted to find someone to hire. So our sales pages, the brochure part of our website, the money, the, 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 the demand generation parts of our website are optimized for those phrases, the service names, the business category, the industry. So with that in mind, we have to understand that, yes, it's very useful to publish these helpful articles, but and they may attract huge amounts of traffic, but those visitors aren't likely to become leads. But 
no one is ever going to link to your sales pages. So if you want to rank those sales pages, you need to have enough authority on your domain. You need to have a credible website within Google. How on earth can you do that? You need links from other sites. What would, why would anyone link to you? Because you published something helpful and useful that they referenced because it made their content better. So without blog posts, you'll never, you'll never have anything worth linking to. Therefore, other sites won't link to you. Therefore, you'll never have high domain authority. Therefore, you'll never rank for the money phrases. You'll never rank for the commercial intent key phrases. So it's a poorly understood but critically important part of content marketing. One of the best reasons to write blog posts is that those blog posts give the universe something to link to, making your entire domain more credible, helping you rank for the money phrase on your sales, on your service pages. So then if you keep go one step farther, what do people link to specifically, right? What, are the, what is the best content for attracting links? The answer is original research. The piece of content we mentioned earlier that, you know, it takes four hours to write a blog post, 2,000 websites have linked to that research over the years. There are more links to that content program, that survey, than most of my competitors, my competitors combined. Like we are, we're dominating our category in search. How? Because we published content that attracts links from other websites, building up our domain authority. So it's so much higher than our competitors that we rank, you know, we drive qualified visitors every day to our sales pages. And those visitors convert into leads because its pages are built to optimize for conversion. Long way of saying there are powerful indirect benefits to content marketing that a lot of strategists um, don't fully understand. It's related partly to search and you have to understand domain authority to really get this benefit. Mm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense what you say though. And it's kind of like the oil, isn't it? It moves things around and keeps things moving. I mean, it gives people a reason. What With those links, you know, those 2000 um, uh, backlinks to your research, I mean, that, that's earned media. That's a classic earned media. You've earned the right for that to happen. Um, you know, you can't buy that. <laughs> you can't buy it? Yeah. No. And well, so it might cost you yeah. a fair, fair whack if you did, but it wouldn't be the same. Uh, but you've got to earn it, and it's a long-term game. And um, and uh, so I, I like that. I, I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone sort of explain it that because SEO people saying, well, every blog post needs this. And, you know, if um, again, if I use the set Godin, point of view, his, his um, headlines are not SEO uh, no, he's optimized got, yeah. at all. He writes a what's right, what's intriguing, what's, you know, and, and sometimes I have that struggle in terms of, well, this is not going to rank, but it's a bloody good head, creative headline and I like it and it's going up. I, I, you can, I know you can tweak the, the Google. Nothing wrong with that. Only maybe um, half of my articles are optimized for search anyway. Hmm. Not everything is relevant in SEO. Those opinion pieces we mentioned, no relevance to SEO. People need to remember this and free themselves from any consideration for keyword research or you know, using phrases, titles, header, body text. If the, key, if the phrase you're searching for is either something no one is specifically looking for or you have no chance of ranking for, just write what you want to write. Just, just make, you be as clever as you'd like. Give it the headline you think it should have. Not every, top, not every URL and every blog post and web page is, is relevant to search. Yeah, yeah. But just the ones that are, spend the time on that. 
again, the, the ones that are pull out all the stops. Yeah, fight to the death. It's a blood sport. It's worth winning. Never give up. Make that thing the best thing you possibly spend an extra six hours on it if you think it'll make it ten percent better. Because be uh, your goal is literally to make the best page on the internet. That's the job. That is fantastic, Andy. I love all that. I love all that because it's there. You know, there's a lot of mystique, a lot of black magic, a lot of bells and whistles. But uh, when you look at it, it's um, just quality. Yeah. <laughs> And be judicious with whatever you do, I think, whether it's whatever content you're putting out and then what do you optimise and what do you don't, that sort of thing. So, uh, mate, thank you very much for your time. You're a very busy man over there in Chicago and I much much appreciate you taking time with us here on Reputation Revolution. And also um, we covered a fair bit of ground, which was <laughs> terrific because everything's interrelated, as we now know. So um, just uh, how can people find you? Um on the web, there's a few Orbit Media, so um, I want to make sure people get the right one. Well, uh, the article we mentioned, my, my frequency is every two weeks. Uh, you can find that and sign up for that. It's at orbitmedia.com slash blog. So you can find something new for me there every two weeks. LinkedIn would be my, my best social network for sure, LinkedIn and Twitter. There is a book. It's on Amazon. It's called Content Chemistry. It's everything I know about content marketing and whatever. How many times have you updated that now? It's in. It's uh, this year. I will be writing the sixth edition of it. Six editions. It changes that much, isn't it? It does. Crazy. It Crazy. does. Yeah. You. It's. Um. If you want to be relevant, if you want a piece of content to be relevant, you can't just let it languish. You really have to keep going back to it, whether it's a blog post or a book or whatever it might be. But do you take the old ones off and off Amazon and just always just have the new one up? I don't know how to remove a book from Amazon. I don't know if you can. Amazon's sort of famous for never deleting URLs. It's frustrating because if you search for it, you can't really control which ver- which edition of which book ranks in Am- in, in Google. Mm-hmm. So uh, you think that you, go with the the latest one? Well, David Meeman Scott's up to about seven or eight of the market. Yeah. yeah, and they're very very. I've got the original book. It's very it's a yeah. very different book. Yeah, I have the hard copy. Uh, it's um, I think MySpace may have been mentioned there in Second That's Life. Funny MySpace and Second, Second Life. Life. Wow. I still think there's room for Second Life, but hey, I'm surprised that it hasn't come back. But anyway, be that as may. So uh, (laughs) I I definitely recommend uh, subscribing to Andy's blog. Uh, It is a ripper. And as you say, once a fortnight, high quality, uh, great resource, put it on your list. Uh, Just to get a general feel uh, for digital marketing, because you're not overly, I don't think you're overly tech. I think you explain it really, really well. Whereas a lot of people in digital marketing can go quite high tech. And uh, I think it's very accessible. And I think people need to understand and start joining the dots of digital marketing and what sits behind the scenes because there are a lot of dots to be joined. So definitely recommend um, doing that. So connect with Andy on LinkedIn and uh, orbitmedia.com. Sorry, it's forward slash blog. Yes, that's right. Yep. Definitely put that on your uh, bookmarked list. Thank you very much, Andy. Much appreciated. Thank you, Trevor. This was a pleasure. Thank you. The reputation economy is here. The world today needs more genuine, credible experts and leaders to stand up and share their experience, their wisdom, their stories and ideas. Are you in? 